0: A quick Google search on leadership will yield countless results. One discovers a myriad of books claiming to have discovered ten secrets to leadership. Twenty-one irrefutable laws of leadership. Thirty ways to define leadership. Five levels of leadership, so on and so forth. Why so much concern for the topic of leadership? But simply, Leaders, well, they lead. They set the tone and example for their followers. It's rightly been said that no organization or group can rise above its leadership. And so we should not be surprised that Scripture addresses this topic more than a few times and in detail. And we arrive at one of those times this morning in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. As you turn there, let me quickly remind you that this book is written by Paul to Titus in order to ensure the establishment of healthy churches throughout the island of Crete. Subsequently, Paul writes mainly about teachers and teaching, thus a really simple way to summarize Titus is to get good teachers in place and then allow them to teach. I gave you the mnemonic device last week. If somebody asks you what Titus is about, just remember, Titus teaches, Titus teaches. Last week, we studied uh, Paul's pregnant prologue, that introduction that was just action-packed, and we said the main idea was that God creates and cultivates faith and godliness through his word. And this week, we're going to add to that, that God creates and cultivates faith and godliness through his word as it is correctly taught by qualified teachers, See, in order for God's word to create and cultivate genuine faith and godliness, it must be faithfully taught. Following me? With me? Paul's purpose in these verses this morning is to guide Titus in helping local churches across the island of Crete to recognize men that can properly teach God's word. And so our main idea this morning is that faithful churches have healthy doctrine, Healthy doctrine, I slurred that a little bit. Faithful churches have healthy doctrine taught by qualified elders. Another way to remember it, if you're trying to remember it a little bit more easily, is to say healthy churches have healthy doctrine taught by healthy leaders. So this morning, we're going to talk about those leaders, that leadership office that Scripture talks about, which is the office of elder or pastor, and that's going to be your outline. We're going to look at the office of elder, its operation, and its occupants. The office of elder, its operation, and its occupants. Let's pray and get started. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this great grace and privilege to study your word together and to be uh, led by your Holy Spirit. We pray that right now you would make uh, holy impressions on our hearts as you cause us to love the things you love and to look more like you. Speak to us now. Help us to uh, get rid of any distractions uh, that might be prying for our mind's attention. Allow us to have a singular focus of listening to your word and submitting to it that we might honor you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at verse 5. The reason I, that's Paul, left you, that's Titus, in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. And so the first question we need to ask, I think, is an obvious one. What is an elder? Well, it's not somebody that's just older than you, right? It's not a respect your elders situation. That's not what's going on here. That's not what Paul is talking about. An elder in the New Testament is a pastor. Whenever the New Testament talks about an elder or an overseer, which is also translated bishop sometimes, or pastor, it is referring to the same thing. It's the same office, elder, overseer, bishop, pastor, that it's... They're used like synonyms, right? In in the Bible, they are used interchangeably. We actually have a great example before us today in verse 5. Paul is saying appoint some elders, and he goes on to give qualifications about elders. And then, describing the same office in verse 7, he uses the word overseer. He's talking about the same thing. Additionally, all three terms share uh, one set of qualifications, and serve the same function, which is teaching and leading the church. So an elder is a pastor, is an overseer. Jeremy Ryan playfully describes the office like this. Elders are pastors who are overseers. It's really actually kind of funny. When I first started here, I came straight from Southeastern, where uh, in a seminary culture, this is kind of common knowledge, and, and due to that fact, the most common term we used to refer to this office and at my church was elder, Rather than pastor, uh, simply because elder is the most common term used in the New Testament. Uh, Pastor actually only shows up once; it's in Ephesians four eleven. But I I think we prefer it because of how Jesus refers to himself as the Good Shepherd, which we looked at earlier today, and and that that idea of shepherd and the people of God being sheep. uh, We just like that, right? And so we think of the pastor as one who. cares for the needs of church members and and exercises uh, leadership over them. It just just makes sense to us. At any rate, uh, when I started here, I I naturally brought that seminary nomenclature with me. So when people would ask me what I did, I, I would simply say, well, I'm an elder at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. And each and every time there was the same awkward pause, followed by two raised eyebrows, An incredulous expression upon the face of my questioner, coupled with something akin to the phrase, you're only 26, what are you talking about? (laughs) At which point I I simply ceded that I am relatively young and and shifted to using the term pastor. my point here though is, is that the title pastor is simply another term used to describe an elder or an overseer, All right? You with me so far? So Paul is telling Titus to appoint leaders in all of these churches. Now the second point, it, it's less clear but it's there, is that about the office, is that when Paul speaks about elders or any New Testament writer, he always speaks about elders in the plural, meaning there's, there's more than one of them. In other words, he prescribes more than one elder for each of the churches in each of the towns. This seems to be the pattern that Paul utilized as he went about planting churches. He would preach the gospel, see God use the gospel to create and cultivate faith and godliness in a group of people. Then he would help that group of people recognize and appoint elders, pastors, overseers to lead them. Thus, a group of committed Christians uh, would come under the leadership of, of a qualified elder and be established as a healthy church. I mean, there are a multitude of verses that describe this process. Acts eleven thirty, Acts fourteen twenty three, Acts fifteen two through six, Acts fifteen twenty two and twenty three, Acts sixteen four, Acts twenty seventeen, Acts twenty one eighteen. Uh, our passage here in Titus, First Timothy five seventeen through 19, 1 Peter five one through. 5, James 5, 14. There are more, but you get the idea. I'm not going to read all of those to you. I'm going to read one that I think gathers the kind of tone of all of them together so that you can get the point that I'm trying to make. You can get my manuscript after and look those all up for homework if you'd like. I'm going to read you Acts fourteen twenty three. And when they, that's Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had Believed You see that elders, plural, church, singular. So Paul and Barnabas ensure that there is a plurality, that there is more than one pastor in each church, leading each church. Dr. Merkel comments, the New Testament evidence indicates that every church had a plurality of elders. There is no example in the New Testament of one elder or pastor leading a congregation as the sole or primary leader. However, the Bible never identifies a specific number of elders that should lead each local congregation. And thus, apart from having a plurality, we are left to use godly wisdom and common sense. So what we have here is the Bible gives us a picture of churches which are led by godly and qualified men who serve as pastors, but there's typically more than one of them. But how many a church should have, it's not outlined. Um, Contemporary churches that adopt this New Testament pattern uh, of having a plurality of elders. They, they typically are made up of some, a paid elder, you, more if they're bigger. Some of the elders are paid. And then some of the pastors are unpaid. They're lay elders that are part of the membership and, and typically have already lived in the community. And while they are different, while some are paid and some are unpaid, they share equal leadership, equal authority, and equal responsibility. Jeremy Ryan explains. Aren't there differences between the special guys who serve as paid pastors for their careers and the regular guys who work other jobs but volunteer as elders? Yes, there are differences. For example, paid pastors often have more formal theological education, more time during the week to serve, and therefore more experience in pastoring church ministry and teaching. It's also possible, though not necessarily the case, that paid pastors have stronger giftings in pastoral care or preaching, which is why the church hires them to minister on a full-time basis. But just because a paid pastor may have more availability, education, or gifting, it doesn't follow logically or biblically that a lay elder is any less a real pastor. For example, volunteer firefighters face the same flames as the paid firefighters, And volunteer elders confront the same challenges of shepherding as do staff pastors. So what we see here is that there is a plurality of elders. There's more than one pastor leading these individual churches. It's also important to note that a plurality of elders, it's not only a pattern we see in the Bible, but it's also practical and wise. Uh, Tony Morita outlines just a few of the benefits of having multiple pastors. First, It protects pastors from mistakes they might make as lone wolves. Secondly, it makes up for one pastor's deficiencies. No one person is omni-gifted or good at everything, and so having multiple pastors allows them to complement one another's gifts and more easily and effectively care for the congregation. Thirdly, it makes pastoral ministry more enjoyable as it is shared. Next, it guards against a pastor sacrificing his family in favor of ministerial demands. Fifthly, it provides accountability and encouragement. Sixth, it allows a division of the shepherding responsibility and prevents burnout, including but not limited to uh, the sharing of praying for congregational needs. Seventh, and I think this is likely most important, it ensures doctrinal integrity. Eighth, it reinforces the idea that Jesus is the head of the church, not a single pastor. Ninth, it guards against the celebrity pastor movement that permeates the Christian subculture. The the church is not built around one rock star senior pastor, but a plurality of servant leaders. Lastly, a plurality of elders is the best way to prepare for the departure of an elder or pastor. It allows for smooth and reliable transitions between paid pastor's and eliminates the, lead, the need to have an interim, since all elders are required to be capable of teaching or preaching. And so you might ask the question, why, why do churches not do this? Why don't we do this? I think sometimes it's because uh, often it's just tradition and hasn't been thought about. Uh, sometimes churches model themselves after a corporate world, and other times, it's because just simply because of fear of change. It's different. Most often, though, I, I think the reason that more churches don't do this is because a plurality of elders just hasn't been taught, or, or if it has been, it just hasn't been taught well, which is why I'm attempting to teach it, hopefully somewhat well, now, with hopes that we might move towards recognizing and appointing other elders, other pastors, aside from myself here at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church not been shy about my beliefs on this matter and I've uh, made known to you my convictions a- about it uh, since before you agreed to, to call me here as your pastor a few years ago. I point that out for two reasons. Uh, to let you know that I do think this is a pattern in Scripture that's worth following and to let you know that, that it's not something that can, will, or should happen without your support. Friends, it is my belief that like the churches in Crete, we have, as Paul might put it, unfinished business as it relates to recognizing and appointing elders. It's okay, I, I don't think that, that God was, was mad at the churches in Crete. I don't think he's mad at us. But I do think he was moving them forward. and he's moving us forward. And so it is my prayer and my hope that, that you will recognize this need also. My prayer is that if we decide to, in an effort to be uh, more obedient to a pattern we see in Scripture, that we would adopt a plurality of elders here. That God would make this a happy transition for us, and that he would raise up men who desire the office and meet its qualifications. One last comment before we uh, move on. I I want you to know that I've prayed about having a plurality of elders here and this particular message uh, since day one, since the day you hired me. Um, it's been two plus years now. Uh, a little hard to believe that it's been that long already, that we're in year three, uh, but we've made it. And I just felt like now was the right time for us to consider this teaching. However, as my wife is apt to point out, I can be wrong. So it could be the case that we're not ready to move together in this direction just yet. That's Okay. But I do want you to know that's the direction I think we need to go in. And I would love for you all to come in that direction with me. All right, so to summarize what we've seen uh, here in verse 5 and then in Acts 14.23, as I point out some of the pattern of Scripture, is that elders are pastors who are overseers of the church, and typically the practice of Paul was to put a plurality of them in the churches that he planted. But the next question we need to ask is, what exactly do these leaders do? Some of you have been wondering that a long time. What does he do exactly? What's their primary duty? Or if we want to follow my outline, because I have all those O's there, the office, it's operation. What is the operation of an elder? What's the operation of a pastor? The answer is found, again, throughout the New Testament, but I think it presents itself quite clearly to us in verse 9. You can skip down there. We're going to come back and do 6 through 8 in just a second. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So, this is why he's holding tightly to the word, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound, that can also be translated healthy, that's why I've been using the word healthy, so he can give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder pastor is one who holds firmly to the message of the gospel and teaches it faithfully. He presents the truth and he protects the truth. To use the body metaphor, uh, elders are like the antibodies within the body of Christ. They work to keep the body healthy, and they team up on intruders. The primary role of elders is to care for the flock through faithful teaching. I mean, it's teaching that can take place and should take place uh, in Bible study, in, in Sunday school, in discipleship situations, in small groups. It just, it needs to take place. It needs to be a gifting. The, the ability to teach is a unique requirement for the office of elder. We haven't quite got to the qualifications yet, but one of the striking things about them is just how exceedingly ordinary they are, right? The requirements or the qualifications for a pastor are, are things that should mark every Christian. In fact, the, the list that for, for an elder is exactly the same list uh, of things that not only should mark Christians, but also uh, that should be true of those that are deacons. Right? There are two offices in the New Testament, deacons and elders, and the list is the same of the, for those two, for the qualifications, except for the ability to teach. Elders have to be able to teach. That's because their primary responsibility is shepherding God's people, teaching God's word, whereas the deacon's primary responsibility is serving God's people. Thibidi comments, deacons and elders make up two enduring offices in the New Testament church. And while deacons serve the practical and physical needs of the church, elders serve the overall spiritual needs of the church. So elders lead by teaching the word faithfully. And teaching, it's so important because God's word, rightly taught, leads to the creation and cultivation of genuine faith. Like Paul, elders are slaves of God, working for the sake of the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. That's first 1 of chapter 1 here. Brothers and sisters, learning the truth about God is paramount to authentic Christianity because, and this is important, hear me, theology leads to biography. What you think about God will determine how you live your life. Beliefs determine behavior. That's why solid gospel teaching is vital to the church's existence. I mean, if the church abandons the gospel, if it abandons healthy teaching, it loses the gospel and it loses everything. A church that does not preach the gospel, according to Jesus, forfeits its right to exist. Teaching is paramount. Which is why it makes sense for Paul to also tell us that pastors must be able to correct those who contradict healthy teaching. There's actually, you'll see towards the latter part of chapter 1 there, that there are false teachers, as we see throughout Scripture, there are false teachers in Crete too. And so Paul wants to make sure that the leaders of the church are able to uh, correct them and teach their people that, hey, this is why those guys are wrong. We need to hold fast to the truth that we've learned and inherited from the Lord Jesus. Calvin brilliantly commented on this verse. An elder ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. Pastors preach and protect the scriptures faithfully. Because God's strategy for the expansion of his kingdom, his strategy to make his name known throughout all the world is through the faithful proclamation of the gospel by genuine Christians serving in healthy churches taught by healthy leaders. To say it more concisely, God's plan to reach the world is through church planting. It's through church planting. I wonder, is this our plan? Do we aim to steward our resources to build healthy churches in as many towns, villages and neighborhoods throughout the world as possible? You know, I think sending missionaries uh, to reach lost people that we can't get to and to plant churches, it's an excellent way for us to be obedient to the Great Commission outside of our own community. I mean, so th- some of the ways we do this already is by supporting Rob and Rich at Uptown Church in Martinsville, Lynn and Olin in Africa. And we do it by giving to the Southern Baptist Convention and to Lottie Moon and the North American Mission Board. And those are wonderful things. We do it by praying together for the growth of the gospel in all these places. And it's really exciting to know that we are, from our small little church, in this small little valley in the grand scheme of things, that we are participating in the global work of God. And isn't that amazing? that through our giving and our praying that some people are equipped to go and preach the gospel in places where it's never been heard god is building his kingdom and he's using our efforts our obedience to do so it's awesome it's exciting seen that elders are pastors who are overseers that serve the church by faithfully teaching and protecting God's word. That's the office. It's, uh, it's operation in a nutshell. Now we turn our attention to its occupants. Who are elders? Who are pastors? And verses six through eight reveal that pastors are qualified men. Let's read verse six. <clears throat> one who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of wildness or rebellion. For an overseer as God's administrator or steward, must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not addicted to wine, not violent or a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, disciplined, holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. The qualifications for elder, for pastor, are all, if you noticed, centered on character rather than capabilities, aside from the ability to teach, obviously. I mean, the focus of these qualifications is definitely on who a person is more than what he does. It is of utmost importance that those serving as pastors are men Of integrity, men who represent Christ well. The emphasis on integrity leads Dr. Merida, along with others, to uh, speculate or suggest that the congregation had to have been involved in the appointing of these leaders. I agree. Uh, It would be almost impossible for Titus to evaluate all these men that, that he didn't know fully or well to know if they were ready for the office, I have to assume that he consulted with those that were rubbing shoulders with them on a day-to-day basis. Which I think shows us, if true, that while the congregation is served by, cared for, and advised by its elders and pastors, that it has final authority. If the church's leaders disqualify themselves by immorality or by teaching falsely, The church must pull the metaphorical emergency brake and discipline and or remove the responsible pastors. Church has great responsibility. You have great responsibility in holding me and hopefully in the future the other pastors here accountable. Additionally, it's also true if a church does not follow its leaders, church will not be effective. We can only flourish insofar as as we are willing to follow and participate with the leadership under which we have placed ourselves. The most, I think one of the most practical ways that we participate together is the church, with, uh, mini- in ministry with one another, and, and with uh, the leadership here, on a consistent basis aside from, from right now anyhow, is in our member meetings. I mean, member meetings are where we come together as the church to pray and process how we might most glorify God as the church together. I mean, these meetings are an essential part of what it means to be a member here at RVBC. It's the responsibility of each and every church member. What happens in those meetings sets the course of our church. And so I exhort you, come, come. Men of integrity are to be recognized and appointed to the office of elder, but what indicators of holiness should the church look for in a pastor, I'm going to take each in turn. First few will take a little bit longer, the last few will go really, really quickly. An elder must be blameless, or perhaps you have above reproach in your translation. This word, I think, is a summary of all the other characteristics, and it's repeated again in verse 7. It doesn't mean, though, that the man lives a perfect life. I mean, y'all have spent enough time with me to know it doesn't mean that, right? A life that is blameless or above reproach. It's not a perfect life, but a life in process, a life in which progress in holiness is being being made. It's a life that has clearly been transformed by the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a life that has a heavenward trajectory. It's a life of someone that has really encountered Jesus. I mean, only the person that's truly encountered Jesus can strive to live a blameless life without being crushed by their failure to do so. I mean, let's be real, left to ourselves, none of us can live out this first qualification without failure, let alone the whole list. But the truth of the gospel is what affirms us in our Holy Spirit-empowered efforts to be holy as Christ is holy. Holy not going to be perfectly blameless until Jesus returns. But even now, we have been proclaimed perfect because Jesus lived perfectly in our place. I mean, he lived a blameless life. Jesus is the one who fulfills this list of requirements perfectly on our behalf. Jesus was not arrogant, but humble. He was born in a cave, placed in a manger, hung on a cross. He was not quick-tempered, but patient. Jesus turned water into wine, but always remained sober. Jesus was not violent, but gentle. Jesus was not greedy for gain, but became poor so that we might become rich. He scorned Satan's offer of a crown without a cross and went to the hill of Calvary for the joy set before him, you and I. Jesus was hospitable, a true lover of strangers, a friend of sinners. Jesus loved good and defines self-control, holiness, and discipline. His grasp on truth will never loosen, and his instruction is eternally healthy. And he did all these things perfectly in our place and died in our place so that we might place our faith in him and be counted blameless positionally and experience growth in grace practically. Make sense? It's that sanctification idea. Again, we are becoming in practice what God has already declared us to be in truth. He's declared us to be perfectly righteous, positionally in Christ, we're perfectly righteous, but that's the not yet, I'm sorry, that's the already, but the not yet is we we live here and now, and we still are affected by sin. Jesus (laughs) Jesus has saved us from sin's penalty and from sin's power, and when he returns, we're going to be saved from sin's very presence as we learn though to become and practice what he's declared us to be in truth as we learn to grow practically into what we've been declared positionally we can be encouraged by the words of hebrews 13 now may the god of peace who brought up our lord jesus from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To be blameless or above reproach is to be someone who has clearly encountered Jesus Christ and whose life has a heavenward trajectory. Remember, this qualification is not just for church leaders, but for church members. Have you encountered Jesus? Is your life on a heavenward trajectory? Christians' walk with Jesus is the string upon which all the pearls of righteousness are strung. If you cut the string, all the pearls drop to the ground and scatter everywhere. If you are just doing righteous deeds, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are scattered and lost. Christians repent not only of our wrongdoing, but of our misplaced righteousness. Jesus alone is our righteousness. And the blameless life, it's not the perfect life, but it's the life that walks in step with, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, an elder must be a man. God has called men and only men to be church elders. Then an overseer must be a um, skip the line there. Consider a few observations. Now we're there. First observation. Paul has said twice in different contexts here in Timothy that an overseer must be, uh, the literal translation, and I prefer it, I'm going to use it, is a one-woman man. Husband of one wife comes across literally one-woman man. So that's first. Secondly, immediately before discussing pastors in 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man and he is referring to the office of elder there. Given the immediate context of this verse, that, w- that he has to be doing that at the very least. This must make application to the role of elder because the role of elder is fundamentally defined by both teaching and exercising authority. Thirdly, Paul links leading a church to leading a family. And just as God has called men to lead in marriage and in the home, per Ephesians 5, so he calls men to lead in the church family. This does not mean that women are less, or that men are more. It means that they are different. And in the church, as in the home, God has entrusted them with different tasks. In my house, I am not a mother, as much as I might want to be. God hasn't made me in such a way that I can have a child in my tummy and get, eat all I want and get all big and stuff. It's not how I'm designed. With different tasks. One isn't better than the other. Every, everybody submits to somebody. Authority isn't bad. Secondly, does this mean that women can never teach or shepherd or confront sin or model godliness? Of course not. That's just silly. I mean, I think all of us can probably think of godly women whom God has used to shepherd and shape us. I know I have. I I definitely can. But again, uh, eldership, the office of pastor, it's more than a gifting or a ministry. It, It describes a specific office. A divinely appointed role, a distinct position within the organizational structure of a local church. Just as father is a distinctive, divinely appointed position in the family, so too with elder. And as with the role of father, so God has sovereignly summoned qualified men to the role of pastor. And Paul makes this abundantly clear every time he addresses the issue. He roots his argument not in the cultural context of the time, but in the creative order. The limiting of the role of pastor to men, it's not a patriarchal thing. It's not a cultural thing. It's not a sexist thing. It's a submission and obedience to the clear teaching of the Word of God thing. So let's get on to the next thing. A pastor must not only be a man, but he must be a one-woman man. This requirement doesn't mean that a pastor has to be married just like the next one doesn't mean he has to have children. If it did, Paul and Jesus, well, they would find themselves disqualified from this office. So it doesn't mean that. Husband of one wife, as I've said, is translated literally as one woman man. And that's what's required of an overseer, that he be solely committed emotionally and physically to his wife. Uh, Some have interpreted this to mean that an elder can never remarry, not as a widower or someone that's been through divorce Uh, However, I think this view should be rejected for for several reasons, uh, which are outlined by Dr. Merkel. First, it's doubtful that Paul was holding elders to a higher standard of morality than he required of all believers. All of the moral and spiritual qualifications given to the elders are what is expected of all believers. Secondly, Paul seemed to indicate that sometimes remarriage is a viable option. He stated in 1 Corinthians 7, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, single, But if they do not have self-control, they should marry. Later, he wrote, A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. Thirdly, it is wrong to treat divorce and remarriage as the unpardonable sin. If a former murderer is able to be forgiven and later serve as a spiritual leader, like the Apostle Paul, for instance, who was guilty of murder, then it would seem rather arbitrary that a person who remarries cannot serve in such a capacity. The husband of one wife should not be taken to mean that an elder can never remarry, but that he must be faithful to his wife. A potential elder must honor, love, and be devoted to his wife and to her alone. This view allows for the possibility of an elder being remarried after the death of his wife or after a divorce, although the phrase in question does not directly address either situation. The emphasis of the qualifications given in 1 Timothy and Titus stresses the present situation of a man's moral and spiritual character. The real issue is not so much where he has come from, but who he is now by God's grace. I think so too for every Christian. God doesn't emphasize where we were and who we once were, but who we are now by God's grace. He must manage his household well. I read to you what I think is the, or read to you what I think is the best translation of this verse. One who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having, here's the word that's in question, faithful children, not accused of wildness or rebellion. However, some translate that second part of the verse, verse 6, this way. His children are believers. See that? Some of your translations probably read that way. I think the word that's translated as believers here, it's the same word in verse 9 that's brought across as trustworthy or faithful. I think it's obviously, I think it's better translated faithful here also. Um, and then we look at this verse in light of 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5, which is kind of its twin, says this. An elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household well. How will he care for God's church? So This makes sense because one person cannot create faith in another person. I can't force anyone to believe. Additionally, it would be really, really sticky if it meant we had to have believing children because my kids right now, they're small. Some of you might think they're a little wild and rebellious. I hope not. Uh, But they don't believe in Jesus. They're not able to express saving faith just yet. Does that mean I'm disqualified? Or what if I have a child who at 12 has a saving confession, believes in Jesus, walks with Christ for six years, and then still living in my house at 17, decides I don't believe the gospel anymore. At that point, would I be disqualified? Well, no, that's not that's not what the text is teaching. That's why I think we need to bring it apart, bring it across as faithful. The idea is captured for us in 1 Timothy, that the children are submissive, that elders managing his household well, that the, the the home is kind of the proving grounds for faithfulness in the church. Paul's point in Timothy has in Titus is that the pastor is a good father who relates to his children, if he has them, with dignity. That he is a man who seeks to nurture their hearts and shepherd them in the way of truth. Like Dr. Morita's summary here, he says, uh, an elder is to have behaved kids, not perfect ones, but not little hobbit demons either. I thought that was funny. Especially because sometimes I think that's what Elliot is, a little hobbit demon. To sum up the first few qualities, a pastor is a man who leads, cares for, and loves his family well. Because of this, he's qualified to lead Care for, love, and serve the people of God well. That's the the family portion of the list. The list continues to relate to moral rectitude. And this section will go much quicker. Not arrogant. An elder is a man who is willing to wash feet and smell like sheep. He's not hot-tempered. Uh, if some of you saw Inside Out this summer, like I did, the immediate image I get is of the character Anger, who lived in the girl's head at the slightest of slights or the least bit of opposition or discomfort. He, literally, flames would shoot out of his head, like immediately, and he would want to pull the anger switch and have the, the girl would go crazy. It was really fun, good times. But an elder's not like that, right? Flames don't just shoot out of his head at the smallest drop of a hat. A good pastor is gentle and humble at heart. He's not a drunk. This this isn't a commandment to abstinence, but to temperance, self-control, and moderation. I think a pastor is allowed to have a drink, just like Christians are allowed to have a drink, but they must exercise moderation, keep a sober mind. The pastor, nor the committed Christian, they can't be the closest friends with Jose, Jack, and Johnny. just not going to work. It's not violent. I actually love the KJV's translation here. I see you got that. It took you a second. I love the KJV's translation here, actually. It says, it says saying he's not violent, it says he's not a striker. And the meaning is simple an elder is not a bully. He's so not going to challenge anybody to a no holds bar UFC match in the parking lot after service. See, I'm too lanky, if, even if I did want to do that, I don't think I could take many of you. Elder's not greedy. Pastors should be those who are free from the love and controlling influence of money. Should be doing their pastoral work in accord with 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3, which say this, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Pastor must be hospitable. Literally, this means a lover of strangers. I mean, this is such an important quality, and sadly, I think it's often an ignored one. Not only by by pastors, but, but of Christians of all stripes. I mean, having an open heart and an open home to those inside and outside of the church is one of the best ways to demonstrate the love of God. I mean, it is such an effective evangelistic weapon to just have somebody into your house and to care for them. I mean, hospitality is more than that, but it's not less than that. Do you have people into your home? I mean, hospitality, I think, in our spiritual weaponry, I think it's one of the most powerful. I mean, are you using it? Are you showing strangers, and your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you genuinely care for them by just having them into your house and sharing a meal? Must be a lover of good, Elders are Christ-like and have the Christ-likeness of others as their aim. They promote that which is good, which is Jesus Christ himself, and obedience to his commands. Elder or pastor must be sensible or self-control. Pastors should possess the ability to think clearly and spiritually about important matters and to exercise good judgment. I think of Proverbs seventeen twenty-seven: Whoever restrains his words restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Elders should have a cool spirit. Not cool like he's hip, but cool like calm. Patient. Should be upright or righteous. Elders to be honest. Those who are committed to the righteousness of Christ should be holy. They're to be distinctively Christian. Their lives are to be permeated with that Jesus-y flavor. Be disciplined. Pastors are to work hard. Shouldn't be lazy or Reckless but committed to living with excellence before the Lord. I mean, this is a list not only for pastors, as we said, but, but for all of us. This is what it means to follow Jesus, is to grow in holiness. And the list is breathtaking in its simplicity. And it's also heavy in how hard it would be to keep it perfectly. I think the list reminds us of all of our imperfections, reminds us of our brokenness, and of our unceasing need for Jesus. I think it reminds me of just how scandalous it was for Jesus to die in my place. I mean, how amazing that not only did he die in our place, but that he empowers us to live now for him, to become like him. How wonderful it is to be a part of God's family how wonderful it is to together grow in holiness each day. And as it relates to to leadership in the church and things that that Paul is addressing here, I thank you for allowing me to to lead you in these things. I appreciate it. Thank you for holding me accountable. It is wonderful to be a member of God's people, and to be part of his family. I've exhausted our time, and so I'm going to pray, and we will finish. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word always presses on us and spurs us on towards holiness. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are always goading us to become better men and women, to become better followers of you. Father, pray that you would help us to spurn discomfort in favor of holiness not because we feel obligated to try and earn our righteousness, try to earn our way into heaven, but because we've beheld your glory on the cross, because we know your love for us and have been transformed by it. Pray that our obedience would be affectionate obedience and that it would lead to our joy because ultimately that's what your word leads to. It's what obedience to your word leads to is our joy. So help us to together glorify you by enjoying you forever and having a foretaste of that as we gather together even now. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.